Hey everyone, it's Ray Zahab. Welcome to the Training for Ultra podcast. I'm totally stoked to be on here. I'm a professional explorer and the founder of the nonprofit organization Impossible to Possible and a huge fan of the Training for Ultra podcast. If we could just free ourselves of our perceived limitations and tap into our internal fire, the possibilities are endless. I'll tell you about it when it happened in the race, but to be honest with you, it happened even before the race. It happened in the training. A great cause. Oh, thank you. I respect that, man. So you keep doing what you do, it, man. Keep inspiring. For all you kids out there, stay safe and stay strong. Hey, everyone. It's the Training for Ultra podcast. Scott Jurek here. I was physically totally wrecked. I, I had nothing left. I figured I might as well move as quickly as possible towards the finish line if I was going to be moving towards it anyways. How do you even do that? I decided if I could, you know, finish a 50-miler, I could probably run across the country. 100 miles is not that far. Welcome to episode 188 of the Training for Ultra podcast. My name's Rob. I also go by Training for Ultra. We have a great episode. Ray Zahab's on. He's just an incredibly nice guy, but he's the real deal. Some of the expeditions he's done, they're no joke. They are super dangerous and super extreme. And he's also broken the mold on nonprofits. And I love when he talks about it during the episode, you know, not charging money and people scratching their head and kind of wondering, like, what's the deal here? What's the catch? Um, so I love what he's doing. Ray and I hit it off uh, pretty pretty easily, and I, I think we'll be collaborating in the future. Hopefully, we'll collaborate on some film projects down the road, but I think you guys will enjoy this episode. It was a pleasure speaking with Ray. Ray, thanks so much for joining me today. It's long overdue, and uh, I, I distinctly remember like probably every person that's ever interviewed you watching Running the Sahara looking over my wife and being like, I got to have this guy on my podcast at some point. Um, and it was, it was pretty early. I think it was like the year I started the podcast it was the first time I sat down and watched the whole thing. So, uh, Jeez, well, thank you. So, I mean, this is, this is 13 years. <laughs> I've been, and I've been, I've been following you on Twitter and yeah. listening to the podcast and, Kipchoge's on and then, you know, like <laughs> I just keep waiting and waiting. No, it's awesome to be here. And, uh, I am a fan of the podcast. It's a great podcast. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's a long time though. 13 years goes by fast though. Right. Like, I mean, time it seems it's kind of like accelerated. It's not really, when I was a kid, I remember summer holidays, you know, out of school would seem like they went on forever and that was awesome. But now, like with my kids, I'm like, did summer feel like it went by fast? And they're like, yeah, it went really fast. And they're back <laughs> in school, right? So I don't know if time is accelerating or what's happening, but there you go. I was just telling one of my sons, I was like, you know, like time, enjoy summer. And yes, it, like every year you get older, the faster time moves, it feels like. So I'm right there with you. I feel it. But I yeah. only started running in... 2015 or something to that effect. So I'm I'm right there with you in terms of fast tracking to ultra running. Um, maybe not as extreme, but it's all relative. 
Well, it's all relative. It's, you know, like for me, uh, and you and I sort of alluded to this a little bit offline in our conversation, and that is that, you know, I'm 52 years old, and I've been at this for for some time. I feel like, ironically, even though I'm in 52, I'm I'm in better shape than when I was racing ultras. I feel good because we know more about food and recovery and the older you get, the more you try to preserve yourself so that you continue doing, you can continue doing all the stuff you love to do. But, you know, when I first started running ultras, it, it was like such an unknown thing to me. Like I was a guy who, and most people know this about me if they follow my stuff that, you know, I was smoking a pack a day, two packs a day till I was 30, you know, partying way too much as a lot of people in my generation. And I guess many generations do. Um, but when I transitioned into going into the outdoors, introduced to such by my younger brother, I was, I got into like ice climbing and rock climbing and mountain biking and became a really passionate, competitive mountain biker because that's what my brother did. Right. I mean, these were the sports that we did together. And then I read an article about ultra marathons. One thing leads to another. And I run my very first running race, which was the Yukon Arctic ultra hundred miler. And I won it and I'd never won anything like that in my entire life. And I was like, Oh my God, like, this is just, the people were amazing. I felt incredible doing this thing that I discovered that I love to do, you know, what else is out there in the world? And that's sort of where running, you know, it it took off for me and I started doing these ultras all over the world, but it was a different time. Right. I mean, you know, getting that information, it's not like you look up your Facebook page or your Instagram or, or TikTok nowadays or whatever, you know, it was like I was Googling, you know, about these races and trying to read about being inspired by reading about Western states or whatever. Way, way, way back, like reading about Marshall Ulrich or Lisa Smith or any one of the legends, right? And and learning from their experiences and now information at the fingertips, right? So it's kind of yeah, like a different, absolutely. different time for sure. I mean, if the listener doesn't believe that, don't edit I'm turning my microphone on for you now, Ray. Sorry about that. Um, dealing with every update and headache that that you know comes with the territory of all this modern technology. So, I mean, you of all people have seen a really big turn, turning point in technology, but then a turning point in endurance sports, extreme sports, and and ultra running. I mean, I want to hear more about this. I mean, you've done quite a few interviews. How many interviews do you think you've done at this point? Well, that question alone is kind of interesting because before there was social media, I was routinely doing interviews on, you know, CNN or creating content, the CNN international or discovery channel, or, you know, talk shows like Jay Leno or, or any one of these things. And then, and then the, the way we digest our media has changed and the way we get information has changed. So now, you know, I'm communicating and learning and, uh, you know, reading news through social media, et cetera. Right. But uh, you know, so what was the initial question again? I haven't had enough coffee yet today. <laughs> I mean, I'm already, I'm already <laughs> thinking about you talking to Jay Leno. Like what? That's crazy. Um, <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, in terms of the technology changes, you, you've been at a, oh, yes. a perfect point in time where technology has hyper-developed, but then also the sport of ultra-running is hyper-developed too at the same exact time. 
And I mean, how many interviews do you think you've done, like in totality, whether it be CNN? Oh God, um, I don't know, like a five hundred. Five hundred. I'm. I'm are not you even are sure. you sick of being interviewed at this point, or do you find something? Do you personally take something away about yourself after each interview, or does it have to be like a pretty? You know, well, you know, I, I could be no, like I said, this is what I, 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 I got into this because I loved everything about it, adventure and everything. When we finished the run across the Sahara Desert in 2007, you and I talked briefly about the film as well offline and then and then here. But when we finished that run across the Sahara to go into it a little deeper, it's 111 days, 4,500 miles, you know, averaging, you know, roughly 40 miles a day or so across the Sahara, when we got to the other side, um, I remember, I, th- I think it was the Toronto star. I can't remember exactly who it was that did the first interview and they did not believe that we actually did it. Right. Like they just, they just didn't really believe they thought there was a mistake in the map, but until they found out that it was actually a documentary film and, and Matt Damon was narrating this film and he was producing it and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, Oh, okay, well then it's probably legit. These three dummies <laughs> did in fact run across the Sahara desert you know, those, those, there was like a ton of interviews after that, right? But you know what else there was? Back in Canada where I live were school classrooms in small communities where there was like 20 kids asking me questions. What was it like to be in the Sahara? And they were like hanging on every word. Who did you meet? What did you learn? What did you eat? Where did you go to the bathroom? You know, how did you run that far every day? And it, it became abundantly clear to me that through adventure, and through storytelling, we can learn so much, right? And it becomes like an experiential learning model where when you're out there doing something and then you're able to share it after or even share it in real time, that can be like really potent for young people. So Absolutely. I've never gotten tired of interviews, whether it's, you know, a fancy schmancy talk show or it's talking to classrooms. Like I've done so many virtual classroom talks during the pandemic. Right. And so it's just never gotten old for me. It's a funny thing. I just love to share the things that I've learned. I'm very fortunate to do what I love to do. Exploration uh, is my job. It's my profession. And so um, I'm always stoked to talk about it. You know, I love it. No, I I really love it. And uh, you're so well spoken. It's always enjoyable, like listening to any interview you've done. Uh, I think if anything, modern day media between the pictures you will capture in the future and you have already uh, along the line. And then that video, obviously having um, the Matt Damon capability of capturing, you know, just an extreme event. It's just, it it exemplifies um, and really amplifies what you're doing. So uh, I'm a big fan. And I, I personally, I'm I'm tempted to almost get my son down here to ask you a, a question or two at some point. But Do when, it. At, at what point did you shift from, and maybe it never shifted, maybe it is still about digging within yourself, but at what point did it shift from being a self-exploration to then essentially you're exploring to inspire? Well, you know, when we, so I, I, went, I went from the Yukon Arctic altar, right? And then I started doing, I, I had no idea how I did it. I mean, you know, I, I, I mentioned I raced mountain bikes. I raced all over. I raced, um, uh, you know, in, in all over Canada, um, Europe. And 
But there's something like I never won mountain bike races. I did quite well in 24 hour solos, but to win something physical like the Yukon Arctic, like it was me on that day. I just could not believe that that I did it right. That, that I was the first one to cross the finish line. It just really felt very good to me. I won't lie to you. It felt awesome. And, um, I had no idea how I did it because I was, it seemed to me, until that age of 34-ish, I think I was 34 when that happened, or 35, that I was incapable of ever being, winning was for other people, it wasn't for me, right? And so I went and I did this thing, and I did not only completed what my goal was, but it turned out the way it did, and I had no idea how I did it. So, I mean, semantically, right? Like, I, I knew how I trained, and I did the best I could to prepare, but to actually go there and execute. So I started entering these ultra marathons all over the world, right? And I'm doing these things, and I'm learning so much as I'm making my way across the planet doing these races. And I mean, I had no money in those days. I was barely getting by on my rent, you know, living on KD. But I was using any money that I was saving from being a personal trainer to go and do these races because I was learning so much about myself through doing. And I was learning about the world through visiting with others. And then when we ran across the Sahara changed everything completely because I spent more time in the Sahara on my feet than I had. I calculated pretty much in my entire life. Like, I mean, it was, it was that far. And I, when we started the Sahara expedition, Charlie, Kevin, and I, I was convinced Charlie and Kevin would make it. But inside my head, I thought there's no way I'm going to make it. Like if I make it to halfway, it's a success story. But but the fact that I made it the entire way, it, it, it at about the halfway point, it became so much more about other things than just getting to the Red Sea. And by the time we were done, we had learned about culture. We'd learned about agriculture, economics. We'd learned about the water crisis. We'd learned about biodiversity. All of these things because we were on an adventure. And it shifted in my mind what adventure and exploration could be and what doing these things with the meaning could be. So around that same time in the 2007, when I finished my wife and I met a fellow named Bob Cox, who we would become best friends. And we, the three of us would start this organization called impossible to possible. And the idea was based on the premise of running the Sahara, that we would take young people on expeditions of their own. The expeditions would be fully funded. It would cost them nothing. We would all be volunteers and these expeditions would be learning opportunities. So we would really drill down on what are they learning when they're out there? Are they learning about paleontology, archaeology, uh, economics? What are they learning about? And then sharing that expedition with classrooms all over the world, free of charge. So I know this is a really long answer, but it, that's where the, the intersection happened. So running the Sahara would just be my first expedition. And I knew that everything I would do after that would be long expeditions because that's what I fell in love with. And I loved the challenge and not knowing if I could actually do it. And I love the idea of being in places where I was responsible for finding my way across or I was responsible for the things that was happening. I had to make the decisions like those choose your own adventure books when you were a kid. Right. And that intersection, though, with impossible to possible, then there became a purpose beyond my desire to go and cross, for example, the Gobi Desert or the Atacama Desert or Siberia. And through the combination of the two, my expeditions would 
raise partnership and funding and sponsorship for the youth expeditions, if you get where I'm going. And my expeditions would be ways to directly connect classrooms to the Mongolian culture in the Gobi Desert and the people that I would occasionally come across in the desert and what things I could learn about them or learn from them about the Gobi Desert and tell those stories through video, photo, etc., through a live website and then do live video conferences and then take a group of youth ambassadors at a later date on an expedition either back to the same places or to different places all on their own. So that's kind of where it all went. You know, and I know that's a really long answer, but it's a long answer for a question that took a long time in my mind to sort of come together, you know? I, I love what you do with the nonprofit aspect, and it's something I personally aspire to. I mean, at what point did you just, like, make the leap? Because it's not – I mean, the schools are confused that you're working with. They're like, shouldn't we be paying this guy something? Like, this is unheard of. I mean, at, at what point did this all uh, you know, work together and start just really, like, amplifying things? Well, when Bob and I really got rolling with Impossible to Possible um, in 2008, every, you know, I was well supported by a, a bunch of awesome companies at the time. Gatorade, who was really supporting us. Um, Canada Goose has always been there for us. Apple was there for us. Um, and different different companies over the years, other partners as well. You know, um, uh, was the... the um, Transamerica Insurance Company. Yeah. And so all of these these amazing co- uh, corporate partners that helped us get it off the ground. But, but, but in that first year, when we really were putting the rubber to the road, we got so used to hearing, no, you don't have something that's sustainable here. You can't take young people on expeditions <laughs> and give everything away. And look, it just doesn't work that way. It's not a sustainable model and we said we know we can make this work and we truly believed in it and it and it sort of became all-encompassing to make this thing happen and there was a lot of times and there was a lot of times where we were booking final flights not knowing how those credit card bills were going to get paid right but we were not going to back down on the commitments that we had made and we were going to deliver these programs we sometimes have thirty thousand students on uh, following these expeditions we're going into remote places where we've made commitments to indigenous peoples or to peoples in these regions. We're not going to break those commitments. Like, unless there's like something like a global pandemic, obviously, right? Like we're, we're doing this thing. And so it teaches you something. It's funny. It takes because of the stress and the anxiety and you want to make it happen, but then it teaches you to be resilient and that you can do anything. I mean, you really can have, you just (laughs) really bear down you can do things that you don't think you can do, you know, and, and we learned that. And I'll tell you, it spilled over, spills over into my own expeditions because my own expeditions haven't gotten any easier over the years. And sequentially, as I've gone through crossing the larger deserts on the planet, almost all of them in summer, and then started working my way through Arctic expeditions and unsupported Arctic expeditions across the Canadian Arctic, Siberia, Kamchatka, et cetera. I took lessons from that saying, well, okay, the chips are down right now. Looking like I'm not going to get much further on this expedition, but then just, you just got to hang in there for another day. 
And I learned that from impossible to possible. So it's a two way street, right? You know? And so that's why I do what I do. And when did that thing happen? That, that, that shift it's, it's, it's sort of, it came after running the Sahara and it's never really left. You know, I've said this before and I believe this, that in life, if you can find something that you're truly passionate about, that makes you happy, becoming genuinely happy, you, you're doing something that really makes you happy. You can look in the mirror and be honest to you and accountable only to you and say, yeah, I'm really happy today that I'm doing this. You won the lottery. I mean, it's such a huge thing, you know, because I know what it's like to be tremendously unhappy. That's why I spent the first 30 years of my life and tremendously dire- directionless and not with passion for anything or caring about anything. And then I'm a totally different person in the second half of my life, right? And, or second, two thirds, let's hope. So, you know, in doing what I do with Impossible Possible and with my other expeditions, it all ties together and it's all one thing, but it's, it, it, takes but it also gives you know what i mean i I feel very happy yeah i mean i think very few people come to that realization until it's too late until they look back and yeah they have the the porsche or whatever the bigger house and they're like they've killed themselves for these objects and they're fundamentally not happy and they haven't figured things out and they don't know who they are because society's kind of taught them that these things will make them happy over time and to just work as hard as you can for these things. And then they get them and within six months. It's like, okay, I'm not happy again, like, or less than six months. And they never even begin to search within themselves uh, for that, that deeper satisfaction. And then, I mean, helping others begin their own personal quest to, to search within them own their, their own selves like it's that's what gets me gives me the most satisfaction is having others begin to develop the apparatus to go search out things for themselves and explore not only the external but internal aspects of their world like it's it's a beautiful thing and i think you've done it at scale for a long time Yeah, but i think you know it's all and yeah. it's, but it's relative right it's relative like i mean You know, when I started running, you know, I was telling you, for me, I wasn't really a runner. You know, when I did that first uh, ultra marathon, Um, I was in great shape from mountain bike racing and adventure racing and and all that. But I wasn't a runner. You know, I hadn't done a 5K or a 10K or a marathon or half marathon or any of that before doing the, the 100 miler. But I think we, you know, in a relative way, every one of us has that ability to feel like they've done something extraordinary, right? Like when you, you, when you train to do your first Ironman or your first ultra or whatever, the sense of accomplishment that you get from that is very relative to the individual. I had somebody ask me one time, they said, uh, what was it like exactly? What was it like the feeling when you guys reached the edge of the red sea or when you got to the South pole? Um, and I said, you know what? I remember the very first time in training for uh, the Yukon Arctic Ultra. I had a buddy, he's since passed away, but he was like a running mentor for me. And he said, I gotta teach you how to run. I'll, I'll, I'll get you sorted out and you'll be good to go. He was an ultra runner. And so I, I, I kept, you know, running with him and learning how to run. And then he, we went and did this one run where it was like a seven kilometer loop. 
from door to door from where I was living in a different place in Chelsea at the time. And I remember, I, I, although I was, again, really, really, really good shape from mountain bike racing, I, every time we'd go for a run, I'd kind of like take a break now and then just kind of stretch my legs out, whatever, because it felt like I needed to. And then this one day we went and did the 7K loop and I didn't stop at all. I didn't feel the need to. And we got back to my place and I felt so incredible. I still remember how I felt. It was like, wow, I just can't believe I did that. That's how I felt at the South Pole, at the edge of the Red Sea. There's no difference to me in that feeling. And so I think in our own lives and in everyone's life, it's a relative situation. We're inspired by what other people do for sure. And we learn from what other people do. Um, like, I mean, who couldn't be inspired by Jim Walmsley or, or, uh, you know, any of, or, or Courtney so incredible. And, you know, but at the same time, you know, you go and you do the thing and you get the thing done that you really wanted to do. You can't really explain to someone else what it feels like, but you just did, but you did it. And it was something that you wanted to do. So it has meaning to oneself. Right. And then that perpetuates hopefully another event like that in your life. Right. Yeah. I mean, completely. I mean, what, what, what's been unlocked during these just ridiculous distances and people think uh, they hear that I run my distances and they're like, Oh man, that's uh, like, I can't fathom that. And then, you know, I speak to guys like you and, and Pete Kostalnik and like, you know, guys that just, they look at continents, you know, continents or countries and like that's their distance like in their head and i think it's amazing and i i want to just know more about like was there one or two moments during these just crazy distances that you like the world made sense like perfect sense you figured out something profound about either the world or yourself just in the most mundane mile of 4,650 miles or whatever it was across the Sahara well, or whatever I mean, it was, you know, you know it, in the middle of the Arctic by yourself. Like, I think I, you know, I, I wish there was like a lightning bolt moment like that, but, but in my case, there really hasn't been, okay. but instead what there's been is a series like a little like vignettes of little stories that when they're strung together, they tell something different to me, to myself about, about the planet, you know, and what I'm learning about it, but also, um, you know, on some of these expeditions and being in remote places that we have a lot more in common as human beings with each other on this planet than I think we realize sometimes. I mean, we, I've heard that everyone, so many people laugh. That's really interesting. The transcon guys, a lot of them say like America's so divided like when you turn on the media and then you run across it and you have commonalities everywhere you go yeah I mean, and i'm sure that's globally jokes right? doesn't yeah. matter if you're in the middle of the sahara or you're in the middle of the amazon or you're in the middle of the arctic or you're in the middle of los angeles i mean we're laughing like the same things make people laugh right like we have this we all have this together right and and among a whole other i mean we all want a better life for our kids than we have I mean, it's a common thing, right? We all um, want a roof over our heads. We all want um, and love the taste of good food. 
you know, it's, clean it's, it's simple water. things. Yeah. yeah. Clean drinking water, the obvious things. Right. And then it, and then it, and then it goes out from there logarithmically. But beyond that, you know, being in places like being on these Arctic expeditions when it's minus 65 and the sun in the winter in the Arctic, because I typically do these Arctic expeditions in the middle of winter, the sun barely cracks the horizon, but it comes up just enough when it's minus 60 that that little beam of light on your face, you can feel it. You can feel that heat from that little sliver of light. And it reminds you how incredible this world is and the planet is and how everything just works in sync and everything has a certain way of working and functioning. And we got to take care of this planet because it's getting all messed up, you know? And it's a reminder when I'm in these places, you know, like the Arctic and I've seen glaciers recede tremendous distances in the times I crossed Baffin Island nine times. Nine times I've been across and nine times I've looked at a glacier and I've watched it. It's one that I used to navigate towards and it's receded. And it's a place I love so, so much in the Canadian Arctic, but I've seen it change dramatically. Right. And so the world, you know, and, it, and it's awesomeness and the universe and how it all just sort of comes together. I've been reminded of that many times, but the, you know, the thing in the Arctic, I, I remember that because it's the most recent experience in January 2020. I uh, ran and trekked uh, with all my supplies that I needed from a small island in the Davis Strait called Kikik Tarjwak. And I crossed the Davis Strait and then I went up across Baffin Island. And I remember waiting, you know, 20 hours for, you know, at a time for that sun to just come up and just that one little sliver of light to to give warmth right that's amazing it's amazing i mean so are you is that going through your head when you do something in like death valley or even like i mean you didn't have that reference point for the sahara but when you're running in deserts like the gobi or wherever it is and the sun is just beaming down on you and you know you're so dehydrated and you're questioning it all like Will your mind go and reference the polar opposite, like to that point where you haven't seen the sun and you're waiting for the one beam of light for those few, you know, those few moments, those few minutes of of time before you lose it? Well, I find like every expedition that I've done, there's been a different sort of motivation that kind of keeps me moving. Like when I crossed the Atacama Desert in that was in summer. 2011 i ran 1200 kilometers so roughly 800 miles north to south uh middle of the desert and um it was excruciatingly difficult solo minimal resupplies um going as far as i possibly could navigating across mountains and valleys and salt lakes and it was just brutally hot insanely dry as a matter of fact it's the driest place on earth there's nothing out there nothing lives out there and all I was thinking about was getting to camp every day. And that was my overarching mission, right? And I think to myself, there's no way I'm going to get through today. Like, there's just no way. I can't. It's not survivable. I'm not going to make it. And then I would think to myself, well, but you know what? 
just get to camp. Who knows what they're making to eat today? Like, so food became motivation. But along the way, I'd see something amazing or I would experience something amazing. And I would catch myself at camp talking to the guys. I'd say, oh, you wouldn't believe what happened today. I was out there and this crazy thing happened. And then I would be on a live satellite call because we were, we were sharing that expedition as with all my expeditions with the classrooms, as I mentioned before. And I'd be on with a bunch of students. And I'd say, oh, you wouldn't believe this, this petroglyph that I saw in the middle of nowhere, right? And that hasn't been seen maybe in a thousand years or who knows how long because no one really has a reason to go out into the middle of the Atacama Desert. And so that, what I started to realize was that during the day, there was other motivating factors than just getting to camp and dreading what might happen during the day. But instead, I'm in this amazing place. I'm experiencing something. Hey, what might happen tomorrow? Right? Like what might happen? And then that it, it shifted. Whereas... You know, other places in the Gobi Desert, which is over 2,000 kilometers, I ran uh, again in summer. And I just, I, I would occasionally meet, it's, a, it's the least densely populated country on earth. So I would very, very occasionally meet other people out there. And I started to have the most random of circumstances where I would just needle in a haystack, run into the one other person that was the only person for hundreds of miles around. And I would run into that person randomly. This happened more than once. And, uh, you know, different people doing different things, people that live there, people that were visitors to there. And I would hear their fascinating stories of what they were doing out there. I mean, I thought what I was doing was a bit wacky, but though they had a, they had a, an amazing story of why they were out there. And I would learn from them. And those stories, those human stories became sort of a compelling driving factor to get across the go because I couldn't wait to share it with say to, you know, get that next call with classrooms and say, you're not going to believe who I met out in the desert today. <laughs> you're just not going to believe. You need this. like a little yeah. recorder. Like, so you're, you could start a podcast where it's like, like two people randomly, like the only two people with hundreds of within a hundred miles or whatever, like conversations with just random people that you come across and just capture just 15 minutes of that, like, or 10 minutes or whatever. Um, but you brought up a point about coming across, coming across history just in the middle of nowhere. And it brings back a memory of, um, the podcast I did with Bob Crawley and Tim Tweetmeyer on the, I think they called it history trail trekking for, uh, the forlorn hope expedition kind of like reworking how that actually transpired and, and looking at the topography of the area and going through and just like literally trying to figure out with um i think it was uh anthropologists or um just uh, some college professors of whatnot i this really reminds me of this idea and i really wish nat geo discovery channel like would get a hold of someone like you that can explore parts of the world where no anthropologist, archaeologist, any kind of like PhD for the most part that's not an ultra runner can can access and have have you guys explore and like really figuring out things that just aren't accessible on foot or easily accessible on by helicopter or plane like do you think there's enough places out there 
in the world that could be explored through that type of avenue that, I mean, I would love to try to hook up Nat Geo or Discovery and you and have like a TV show instead of jumping out of helicopters, Bear grill style. I think that was Netflix. Well, you know, you know what? It, it, it's interesting, you know, that, that you say, you know, the world is, is, is amazing. There are a lot of pockets of this planet that, that people haven't visited. Right. But there's also a lot of places on the planet where people go to explore. Let's say they're looking for something like a, like a famous case is Franklin, the Franklin expedition with the ships that were, you know, uh, that crashed, um, in the, uh, sunk, sorry, in the Northwest passage, trying to go through the Northwest passage. Yeah. And people looked for years and years, trying to find Franklin's ships. And they, you know, these people come up from the South and they would go up to the North into Nineveh and they would look for the ships and they would knew where they were. And nobody bothered to ask the Inuit. Nobody bothered. And then eventually somebody asked someone, Hey, where do you think the ships are? And they said, over there. They basically point to the exact direction where the ships always were, right? So there's so much knowledge in indigenous peoples around the world that um, we can learn so much about our own lives, but of course about their lives and the places that they live in and these untold histories of these places that lay within indigenous knowledge, right? And so I think there's been... Uh, there is becoming a shift where exploration is less colonial and it's more inclusive and learning based. Right. And I think that that, that is something that I'm really excited about. And cause I, you know, over the years, the greatest lessons that I've taken on expeditions have come from my indigenous friends on these expeditions about the places that I'm in. Like whether you're in the Amazon jungle, learning about a specific plant or, being in the Arctic and learning how to survive in the Arctic because there are things that you do and there are things that you don't do. But to your note about being able to share those stories and capture that footage, it's a really difficult thing to do. But I have, I don't even want to say, cause I don't want to jinx my next expedition because you know, with the pandemic and everything I've already had to postpone, but I have a, a pretty, a pretty big expedition coming up this winter in the Arctic and it's being filmed exactly in the capacity that you're talking about. So that story will be shared about this massive region That's of awesome. the Arctic that is very, very remote and really stoked, really stoked about the, about the lens, no pun intended, that they're taking in wanting to create the story around it, that it's not a film about an expedition. It's about the place that we're in. So I'm really excited about that. I'm Ethan Wayne, director of the John Wayne Cancer Foundation. And I'm Molly, the race director for the John Wayne Grit Series. My father, John Wayne, asked my family and I to use his name to help find a cure for cancer. So we started the Grit Series. It's a series of 5Ks, 10Ks, and half marathons that take place in the most beautiful and rugged landscapes across the Southwest, including places where John Wayne shot some of his most famous movies. That's right. And all the race proceeds go towards cancer research and prevention programs. We're asking you to join us and bring your courage, strength, and grit to the fight against cancer. For more information on a race near you, visit us at johnwayne.org. That's johnwayne.org. Stay dusty. Also, big thank you to Tannery Outdoors 
If you're interested, use uh, the promo code ULTRA10 for 10% off. But this is just a great company. You know, it's designed for runners by runners. Uh, The founder is an ultra runner. And it's an all-natural mineral-based product, which in this era of, of sunscreen recalls and everything taking place there, it's just comforting knowing um, this, this is a, a good, honest company and um, it, it cares about the ultra running community. It cares about the trails and in the national parks and state parks. I think 1% of their sales goes back into the park systems and they, they definitely support, you know, some really great ultra runners and ultra running podcasts. Big thank you to Exoskin. So they have a new t-shirt. It's 100% cotton, two colors, black and neon green with white logo on the front and a hashtag show us your skin and at Exoskin USA on the back. They are $26.50 each without a discount available, but still just really appreciate their support. So check out the show links um, for that link to Exoskin. But it, it's full circle to running the Sahara and Matt just being having that foresight of almost seeing millions and millions of YouTube videos of guys like doing extreme sports. He almost saw like he, he made that connection. I'm not even sure how he connected the dots there, but for Matt Damon to kind of go all in on this project um to capture you guys i'm a big believer in video it there's higher barriers entry for sure um gopros have made it a little bit easier but um in terms of sharing and inspiring the world i continue to think the avenue is video podcasts have picked up recently uh, because you can't always be watching things um but to truly change people's lives. Yes, audio is awesome. Audio is a big part of a film, but ultimately it's that visual. At least for me, how I see the world, like it's it's everything and and people sometimes don't even believe it until they actually see it. Uh, and it's yeah, more, and you it's know, more than just pictures. Well, and it's interesting that you bring that you bring up the um you know, the, the aspect of that inspiration component. Like, I mean, just, just last week, two weeks ago, last week, I can't remember time is going so fast. Um, UTMB was on, right. And everybody was following UTMB and the broadcasters did an awesome job of sharing the stories about what's happening. And, you know, we're all following Courtney and we're all excited and whoever anybody's following, we're all following everyone. And it's very inspiring. You get to see it and you're all jacked up and you're totally stoked. That's like a new thing. Think about it. I mean, that's only been in the last few years they've been doing this, exactly. you know, unless yeah. I missed it before that. And before that, what did you have? Well, you know, you, you, you had, you have your iPhones and you're shooting videos and you're uploading and either to your Facebook or now Instagram or your TikTok, whatever. And then before that, what were we doing? It wasn't that long ago. Like when I crossed the Atacama in 2011, okay, so that's 10 years ago. But 10 years ago, I was using this thing called a flip camera. Mm-hmm. And it was like 720, I think, was the best version they ever had. And that was what I was capturing. You know, my run, it went in my backpack, and I would use this thing. I would do AAA batteries, and I'd change the batteries, and we'd shoot these little stories. And that's how we 
get immersed classrooms into the Atacama Desert. Like I'm doing this crazy run here. This is what it looks like. Now, I also mountain bike. Years later in 2016, I mountain biked the length of the Atacama Desert, same time of year in February, which is the middle of their summer. And the changes in the desert, I could not believe it, how much it had changed because mining companies are moving in. There's a new road. There's this, that, and the other. Right? So the landscape was changing. So I was glad at least I had my flip phone. Their flip, not a phone, but a flip camera to grab that footage before it disappeared. Because as you say, the video of these places is um, potent in a way, right? Because it's a reminder for me, but also I get to still share those stories in the way that it looked in 2011 of classrooms, right? So, I mean... There's, o- there's only so many people that can experience an expedition on an extreme scale that's like truly an amazing story, but then convert that into words. And so there's there's the ability now to have at least someone either there capturing for you or have a, a GoPro or something. But yeah, uh, Matt Damon was way ahead of his time in picking up on that. And I mean, it's a whole industry that followed that film in my opinion are pretty close to right around that time and uh i i'd say race directors need to watch out that they don't get just elapsed by other race directors of like you know the formalized things that are capturing these events and and sharing the visual experience as opposed to some that you know a month later there's some results and it's i respect the old school stuff but at the same time it's like um, you know, the world's definitely changing and how they're consuming media. It, it just continually changes. It continually um, changes. It continually evolves, right? I mean, you know, like 1080 and then 4K and then what are they, like, aren't they doing something like 8K an hour? <laughs> I don't even know. Yeah, it's, I, I kept going back and forth on, on my like next camera. Like, do I buy an 8K so or 4K? HD. I mean, it's no one so has AK TVs yet, right? <laughs> I don't even know. Like, I mean, with I, I need my contact lenses, and I got to wear my reading glasses to like look at my phone. So I don't even know if I can see the H8K. You know, <laughs> it doesn't. Like, I, I mean, it's beyond AK. It's like, uh, like it, it's can you even afford an AK TV for the next few years? And I was like, mm, I think 4K is going to do it for me personally. <laughs> 4K is good enough for me. I think 1080 is probably good enough for me. You know, it'll be around. But you know, it's yeah. speaking about speaking about running movies because we've talked about running the Sahara for your listeners if they haven't checked it out, and this will make me feel even older because I know this movie. But if you haven't seen the movie Running on the Sun, that's exactly which, what I was thinking to myself as I said that. <laughs> like one of the greatest movies of all time because it is like it is a non. It's not like it, it, there's a lot of great running movies, but it's it was really one of the first running movies. And it was at a time when it was filmed about bad water for your listeners. I won't give away any of the, 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 the cool stuff, but it's a film about bad water before anybody knew what bad water was. There was no social media to share the bad water photos and stories from bad water. There was just these people who wanted to go do this crazy race in, in Death Valley. And it's such a great film because it's a study in the characters that's who was ultra running in those days, right? I, as a filmmaker, okay, I, I love that film. It, and like you said, who's crazy enough to even go out there and, and run or crew, but film. And then when you're there and you have 
I I brought tough cards that basically can go through the washer dryer and like retain all their information. They can get hot. And before I flipped on this special setting of this new uh, camera, I had my camera was shutting down in Las Vegas because it was overheating. And you put your phone just in the sun out there and it shuts down. So you look back at what they captured. It's just like, whoa, like. Yeah, that, and, people, that, and it was shot on tape. Yeah, don't forget, it wasn't shot it on It was SD old cards, school, and know? I don't know honestly how they did it. Yeah, well, they, running the Sahara was shot on amazing. tape. Yeah, running the Sahara oh, okay. was shot on tape, and they had to, they had to, they had a four wheel. There was a movie people could see it. It's called The Making of Running the Sahara. I, I don't know if you could still find it. And they had to build a four wheel drive special vehicle. Maybe it was a six wheel drive, and it had like a like a ref- almost a refrigerated thing in the back to hold tape. Like this, Jeez, this is what it refrigeration unit. That's actually a genius idea. Yeah, so they had huh. to, but you know what? On my expeditions, you know, obviously these places I'm going are 50 degrees Celsius. They're, it's 120 plus degrees Fahrenheit on many of these trips. And just this past summer, I was in Death Valley try, trying to repeat something I did in 2011. Will Laughlin and I, uh, in 2011, did the first completely off-road north-south of Death Valley. And then we went back to repeat it. We'd done other projects in Death Valley in July, um, you know, every year we go back and, and, or not every year, but every couple of years we go back and do a Death Valley project in the middle of summer. And so we went back this July to repeat our 2011 North South route just to do it. And um, I mean, we were moving in that 24 hour period where they said it was like the, I don't know what it was, the hottest recorded 24 hour period or something. Wow. And we just happened to be there. And it was 134 at, at, uh, you know, at Furnace Creek, and I can assure you it felt a lot hotter out there in the middle of the desert when you're 20 kilometers, 13 miles between resupplies, right? And, um, you know, we had we had cameras, nothing, all our electronics, everything overheated. Everything we had, you know? I and was out I there, less man. one item, our tracker. I, I, was, I was only out there in, uh, I think it got up to about 121. It was a little bit cooler year quote unquote but um i had zero i i caught four hours of footage total with zero camera meltdowns or shutdowns even which was like amazing um the one and this is a camera team of me and i'm crewing and pacing uh but uh pulling focus uh, like for anyone that is in the filmmaking world trying to pull focus when you're in that sun with nothing around you and you're trying to run around and do stuff is just like, wow. So I probably have like 15 minutes of footage or maybe 10 minutes of footage that are just completely out of focus. Cause I couldn't see any of the screen. Like it, it didn't matter what you put on top of it. It's so bright. It's so hot. And you put a, something up there to cover the screen to see it. And it just probably heats things up even more. It was just, difficult so. and, the, the, and you know the, the same goes for the cold the extreme cold right and you know i've worked with some amazing people over the years whether it's filming or or photography and a lot of times i'm capturing like on an unsupported arctic expedition i if i'm alone or i'm and my teammate whoever it might be we're shooting everything 
and you have to learn strategies for the extreme cold. Like some of these places where we go, it is so cold that plastic of any kind just shatters. When there's, there's no, it doesn't even, it, it becomes as brittle as, as peanut brittle. Like, I mean, it's just brittle, right? It'll just wow. break. So, um, you have to come up with strategies for that and keeping your batteries charged and all that. But at any rate, you know, it's part of it's, it's one of the additional challenges of doing these things that, you know, believe it or not, it's kind of fun, you know, that it's figuring out, it's figuring ways of how to do it. But yeah, I digress running the running on the sun. People got to see that one. If you haven't, it's total classic and it's, I love it. Ray and I will go down that avenue for like next hour or two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if we're not careful. Exactly. Um, so, what's the most painful running you've done? You've run all over the world. You've run legit, like you know, the standardized, sanctioned races, and then you've run just all your own events. You've run others. You're you're balancing that out with getting to places, inspiring a bunch of school classrooms, like. But when it comes down to it, did you ever find yourself in one mile or two miles where it was just like, that's the benchmark. That's how you compare painful. Well, I think, I think the hardest I've had a lot of, you know, obviously times that have been difficult. One time I was in the Arctic unsupported expedition in a region of the Arctic and we'd been dropped by helicopter. I was with my uh, teammate. I wasn't solo on this one. I was doing it with Stefano Gregoretti from Italy. And we, you know, the helicopter dropped us in this really remote coastal area of the Canadian Arctic, and we were loading up our sleds and and, and you know getting our our we have shotguns in, within reach because we were in a polar bear dense area, and um, we immediately started moving inland. And as we moved inland and started going up a river valley, this river narrowed and got steeper and steeper until we were like in a river gorge. And it's the middle of winter, so I mean, I'm used to being in ice conditions or in ice where things would be frozen solid completely. But I have much more experience than Stefano did at this time, so I would, you know, take the lead navigating, but also in checking the ice conditions along this river that we were going. And then we would move ahead, so I would scout ahead. Then we'd come back, we'd grab the two sleds with all the gear and everything, and then we'd move ahead. And at one point, I was checking ice that I was certain was solid. And I had actually, I was actually on a, on some overflow with tremendous current under it that was giving it a buoyancy, like a, a, a almost like an airlock, like a water pressure so that it, it sounded more uh, stable and dense ice than it was. And it broke. And I went into this water and, and immediately almost got pulled underneath the ice sheet because of the current and um, I couldn't reach, obviously, my feet couldn't reach the bottom of, of the river. Um, and so I struggled. And Stefano couldn't get to me because all of the ice was going was, was starting to sag down, if you will. And would, would, the whole works would cave in and then I would definitely be a goner. But I went into that water and I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, this is not going to die. Like, I'm never going to see my, my kids again. I mean, which is, you know, like family's everything, right? And I'm just, that's all I was thinking was... I'm not going to see my kids again. I'm not going to see my kids again. And how, how did this happen? Like how, what an idiot, like how did this, you know, how did I not, how did I let this happen? And I was struggling and I always leave my boots undone when I'm on these Arctic expeditions. If I am moving on frozen rivers or on ice, because if I ever need to get my boots off when they fill up with water, these giant boots, um, I'll be able to get them off. 
and and whatever I'll, t- I'll 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 take my odds with the frozen feet uh over having my boots right so i was trying to get my my boots off with the current using the current pulling against the current and i couldn't um because the snowshoes i had on the boots were keeping keeping them secured to the bottom of my foot if you will like if you picture the strap on the snowshoes and i'm pulling and i'm pulling as hard as i can i'm in this water for almost two minutes i mean almost at the point where you just basically with hypothermia slip underneath that hole and i pulled really hard with my right leg i still have a hamstring injury from it all these years later and my my leg flung out of the hole with the pressure against the current and and of me pulling against the current and it and it in the snowshoe the cramp on on the bottom of the snowshoe sort of on a sideways angle hooked the other side of this hole so my high my hamstring is like hyper extended up in front of me and i can't believe that my foot is in front of me like i could never have made that happen if i tried on any other day but today this happened and i pushed against it and i was able to get to a point where i was up and out of the hole where I could get myself where I could start to roll away. And when I rolled to where the ice was thicker, Stefano reached down and he grabbed me and pulled me in. And I rolled around in the snow. It was about 30 below. And I rolled around in the snow. And I got as much moisture off of me as I could. And as I was rolling around in the snow, I was laughing to myself, like laughing out loud. And to myself, and to myself, I was saying to myself, oh my God, like I, I survived. I lived. Like I lived through this shit storm. Right? And Stefano was looking at me like I've lost my mind. I mean, I just, but I survived. I couldn't believe it. And I have this, this special down emergency suit that Canada Goose made me many years ago for expeditions that I bring in my sled on every expedition I go on in case something bad ever happened. And I would need this down suit. Well, I peel everything off. I put this down suit on, right? I still got the boots on, obviously, because they came with me out of the hole. Well, I had to wear the boots, but I had the down suit. Those boots froze to my feet. We spent two more days trekking out through a snowstorm to get to a point where a buddy of mine was out there shooting photography, a National Geographic photographer, an amazing man who was out there, one of my closest friends, with other friends, some hunters, some Inuit hunters up in the region, and we could get to a point where they could get us by snow machine. And I remember laying in our tent and um this was the this expedition was the first part of three parts we were gonna stefano and i were gonna cross three different regions of the canadian arctic in sequence very far apart the first one on foot and snowshoe the second one on ski and the third one on fat bike and so this was just the beginning right we'd just been dropped by the helicopters that day and we're laying in this tent and he and he and he says to me well what are you gonna do and I said, wow, man, I don't know. Look, I mean, I'm beat up. My feet are frostbitten by now. Uh, I'm a disaster. Um, pre-hypothermic, like a hypothermic, uh, but, you know, on the verge of serious hypothermia. And uh, he said, well, what would you tell a youth ambassador on one of the youth expeditions when they twist an ankle and they're in tears and they can't go on? What would you tell them? And I said, well, I, I tell them they got to try. And, and if they feel that they can't make it that whole way, then they've got to reinvent what their role is on that expedition that they still have to contribute to that thing that they committed to. And he said, so what are you going to do? And I said, oh, I'm going to try, man. I'm going to try and see, you know, like, no, he convinced me just in his questions that I would try to continue. And, you know, we went on to continue after getting picked up in that area and then 
you know, we had three or four days off where, you know, we were able to resupply our gear. We flew to the next region and we completed the next two legs of that expedition. I was in rough shape, dude, but I got it done. That's amazing. That was the hardest day. I think one of the hardest days I've ever had, but there's been others, you know, there's been others, but it's funny. They don't come up in conversation as often. Like I'm, I'm glad I'm talking to you because I get to tell that story. Right. But for the most part, you know, those stories are told, you know, in, in, in stories with the classrooms and stuff. I'll tell those stories because there's always something that we can learn from them. But there's been many hard days on these expeditions, but it's the hard days in anything that we do that make the nice days, the good days seem even more awesome. Like you can't walk into a room that's, that's dark. If you flick on the switch and the light goes on, well, it's kind of the same thing, right? It's just darkness if you don't have a light. And if it's just light all the time, you adapt to the light. You have no idea what darkness looks like. So they kind of work together. You need both. So when you have these really dark and hard days on an expedition, it doesn't matter what it is or in a run or in your training or in life, the better days, the good days are even more illuminated because of the rough days that you have. So there's a trade-off. And in expeditions, it's the same thing. I felt that many, many times where I'm like, oh my God, there's no way I'm getting over this. But then, but then you do, and then you have a good day and you're like, woof. Am I ever glad for this day? And it just seems like such a great day. And and that's the amazing thing about ultra running, trail running, adventure, anything you do, especially endurance-based stuff, I find, is that you have complete distinction in any sport, actually. You have a complete distinction between the good and the bad days, right? And you learn from them. And it's, it's in life. It's in yeah. life in general, if you think about it, right? So you can't have the good days unless you have the bad days. If they're all good, you get too used to them. Yeah. And then it has no meaning anymore. You I, know? Cu- I couldn't agree more. Yes. No, totally. Um, I mean, you said something that has me wondering, like, how, how much of an artist do you consider yourself? Because there's few people that talk about light and how, like, you only get a certain hue of purple at negative 60 degrees in the Arctic because... I experienced that in Death Valley where colors were like the most pure color I'd seen because there's no moisture in the air to like warp that. Um, how, how much of an artist would you consider yourself? Oh, I, I don't like, I mean, I think art to me is like the greatest. And I mean, everybody's got to be, it's the greatest to me. It's the greatest expression of being a human. Right. Like, I mean, you look back through thousands of years of of history and what's left. I mean, it's art. That's what's left. That's what tells the story of being human. Right. Like whether it's in the Great Pyramids or it's in Gobleki uh, Tepki uh, or I'm probably totally pronouncing that wrong in Turkey or, you know, wherever you are in. It's the way that. That it, and how it's the way and how that human beings describe what it means to be a human being is done through art. So I don't consider myself an artist, but I do love art. And I'm fascinated by the way that people can communicate. Like I have photographer friends that it's just the way it's the composition. It's what they're looking at and the way they look at it. 
You know, you look at any one of Howie Stern's photos from a race. It's incredible. It's like, how do you get that phone? Everybody's got an iPhone. Everybody's got an iPhone. Everybody's got a camera, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, the technology now, I've got a Sony A7C. I put it in auto and I point it at something and I take a picture of the pictures. It's not going to make any mistakes. Mm -hmm. But Howie takes that and he makes that photo live, right? And John Golden is the same and, you know, the same in the sense that he has that ability um, you know, there's so many of these amazing people, Jenny Wong, another one. I've, I'm a, such a huge fan of so many of these photographers and of artists that, that do that. So anyhow, it's capturing emotion. I mean, in my opinion, if it doesn't evoke some kind of emotional response from whoever's looking at it, it's not yes. doing, it's not really doing a good job. I mean, unless it's telling part of the story to then evoke something or, you know, make you think something like that's, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Um, I mean, how much respect do you have for that Nat Geo friend of yours? that's out there, you know, in the Arctic when it's 60 below. Um, no, I think he's incredible. The guy's that, incredible. That's pretty amazing. It's yeah, honestly, it, he's just amazing. And, and he, he's a, he's a, like a technology guy, you know, so he's able to figure out the technology to, you know, overcome, you know, what are the barriers of technology? Actually, when we were in Death Valley this last time in July, it being like, uh, I I think one of the hottest times, one of the hottest times ever in Death Valley. And um, there was a guy named Tucker Prescott who was with us, an amazing guy. People can look him up on Instagram. He's an artist. But he's also a photographer and a videographer, and he grabbed um, a time lapse a series of time lapses while we were out crossing the desert. He was off doing his own thing, and he, so but but the exposure he had to re- change the exposure rate because every time that the, the you know that the, the camera was ready to take a shot and expose that um, you know the uh, sensor, it would overheat. So he figured out what is the most I can get away with, the longest exposure that I can get away with without it being too fuzzy or too much noise or too, you know what I mean? Totally. That's an artist. Yeah. That's an artist. Right? Like that's I it. mean. And, and John's like that. And then, these guys are all technological geniuses. I don't know how you guys do it. Yeah, it's, video is weird. Um, and photography a lot of times is very technical. But once you get it, then... It's like next level. I'm not quite there yet. I'm always striving uh, to get better at it. But um, I want to end with like one or two more questions. I really sure. appreciate all your time. Um, what What are we missing? What are What do you end conversations and then turn off your laptop or whatever it is and like say you know chat with your wife and what What do most people that interview you sort of miss? Or like, is there one or two things that's going on in trail and ultra running and expeditions and everything else that you want to talk about? Well, I mean, there's never, uh, the longer I've been at this and the longer I've been on the planet, it just kind of feels to me like, um, you know, the things that I used to sweat or the things I used to worry about or be concerned about, I'm less concerned about now. And I don't know if that's a normal thing with aging, but it's like, you know, I'm, o- I- I'm always satisfied with the moment that I'm in because 
that's the moment that I'm in. It just happens to be right. And so I wouldn't say that there would be a topic that I would regret not bringing up, you know, or, or thinking about, or about talking about, or trying to plug something that I'm doing or, or, uh, you know, you know, anything like that. But, you know, to be honest with you, what, excites me so much these days in ultra running uh, or something that I'd love to talk, talk about since you brought up, is there something in ultra running that I'd love to talk about? I'm really excited about a few things in adventure and ultra running. We talked about one of them before about this new way of exploration where people are exploring in a way that they're learning, right? And that the two things are tied together, adventure, exploration, and learning, are, are, are all something that the three things are all tied together. But also what I love is seeing how the sport of ultra running is changing. It's, it's so many people are getting into ultra running and trail running. Number one, which I love seeing races so jam packed that you're entering a lottery. That's a great thing. I mean, when I was racing ultras, if you wanted to do the UTMB, you just, you would just enter it. <laughs> I mean, there wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, was your, your was sign it, up was just, right? oh yeah, I booked a ticket. Like yeah, you just, I'm doing you know, it. It wasn't so bad. So now though, people are, um, right into it and they're loving it and, and everybody's getting into it. And the other thing that I'm loving so much, not even participation rates being through the roof, which is just so awesome to me is seeing at the elite level, who's starting to participate, the things that they are doing, you know, like Jim Walmsley coming in to Western States and laying a time out there publicly that people were reacting to in the same way that they would react with somebody saying, I'm going to break 205 in the marathon. And people said, it won't happen. Can't yeah. happen. And it it's did impossible. happen. Yeah. And guess what happened after that first person went under 205? A lot of people went under 205, right? I'm not exactly sure how many, but a lot. And so, you know, Jim Walmsley goes to Western States, does this thing, sets a new standard. You know, Courtney goes out there and just blows the doors off of absolutely everything, sets a standard, inspires people where there will be legions of people coming behind her into the sport now that will see a place for them in the sport and a willingness to push themselves physically, mentally, emotionally beyond any limit that they thought they had because the standard has been set, right? It can happen. I could, and I think I that we see more. that, in, yeah. right? And we see that in, in, in human, in sport of all kinds of sport. It doesn't matter what they, hockey, you see it in hockey, how many points you see it in, in um, track and field, you see it in rowing, you see it in everything. People are, are pushing the limits. A friend of mine, uh, a, a, a couple of buddies of mine who were elite marathon runners are now getting into ultra running and seeing them taking off and doing their thing. It's exciting because it, it just makes the sport that much more exciting. So anyhow, I, I mean, I, I, really I took a little, time, you know? I took a little heat focusing in on, on Matt Daniels, you know, with his track background. Um, but he converted, it took fourth at Western States going from sub four to, to States is pretty incredible to watch. Um, but I continue. But what's the heat? Why'd you take heat? Uh, just, you know, I'm, I'm not focused on, um, more traditional elite ultra runners, but I see, I see the front of the pack changing. Um, oh, right. Okay. I, 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 I think, wasn't understanding. I, I think understand. COVID yeah. has, has possibly changed things. And I don't even know if big city marathons are, are, fully uh thinking through like how the future of the marathon will be and then also how 
um, just big city marathons might not work as efficiently as we've seen in the past, just with, um, with COVID and, and all those health concerns. So the logical kind of next step is putting in a 50 K type trail effort. I don't think it would be necessarily like a 50, 50 K, uh, like a, a speed goat 50 K or some like super mountainous one, but it could be. But I think, man, we, we continue to see the front of the packet faster, but maybe we haven't seen anything yet. As weird as that sounds. Well, I mean, listen, that, that's the nature of sport. And that's what we want sport to do. Right? It's hard to comprehend. The, beauty, the, beautiful <laughs> part, the beautiful part about it is you go to any ultra and, uh, you know, Courtney crosses that finish line in, in first place. And she's congratulating everyone else that's coming behind her. Right. And you see that that's part of trail and ultra, right. That that culture, all those are, there's an extension at the front where people are getting faster and it's getting crazier and more people are getting faster. Now you're getting multiple in the 14s at Western States, but still everybody's hanging out. Everybody's there for everyone. And I think that that's something that won't change in the sport. At least I hope it never does. And I think it's what's something that makes the sport very inclusive for everyone that's there, whether your goal is to is to finish uh, and to have an experience and you're happy with making cutoffs or your goal is to go and win. Everybody's experience is relative and that's something that's appreciated by everyone in the trail and ultra world. Do you dig what I'm saying? It's like uh, everyone's there for first, everyone else. You first, know? first 50K I did, I felt as if I won it. Uh, it was like exactly. about a seven and a half hour 50K. With only like three thousand feet of gain, but that finish line to me personally, I mean, that was that was a moment I'll never forget, and I I feel like that's what's really amazing about our sport: back of the pack, middle of the pack, sizes there are growing too with participation, and the elites have their fun. Things are getting just hotter and hotter, faster and faster, and just like more unbelievable and inspiring, but. Man, uh, you're seeing everyone get inspired well, yeah, by listen, everyone. I just, I just, you know? I just remembered this now. It was your, it was your um, post where you said, "Hey, Kipchoge said, you know, maybe, who knows? Marathons are done someday. I'm going to give this ultra thing a try." And then Killian Jornet shared the, your post, right, and quoted yeah. your post. And so there you go, right? I mean, that's 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 a pretty incredible thing. Right, you have one of the greatest ultra runners of all times and mountain runners of all times, and then in the same post you've got you know arguably the greatest marathoner ever, and you've got these two people that you know are both runners, and they both could potentially be doing have done and participated in similar style sports. Right? It I was mean, it was mind blowing, and then to to make it even more mind blowing was. I didn't even start running. Like I wasn't even running. I could not run one mile uh, five years ago. So that was like, um, that was a beautiful moment where you saw basically the, <laughs> the king of marathon and the king of ultras or mountains. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then somehow like I was able to uh, get those two to even be on the same tweet. I don't think Kipchoge's responded to killing. He should. It'd be awesome. Uh, but 
that's what this community is all about. It gives opportunities to those that are passionate about this sport for all the right reasons, you know, like, yes. and I, I couldn't have been more thankful, but same, same could be said to, to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Um, I'm super inspired by everything you do. And I truly, truly want um, down the road to be doing something very similar to, to how you're helping inspire the youth. Like that's a big part of, of my uh, driver and inspiration for everything I do. So Ray, you know, thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll end the episode just with one last little twist here. I mean, words of wisdom, uh, regardless of the distance that someone's going after, whether it be even their first, you know, 10K trail race or their first 200 miler, whatever it is, um, maybe it's their first Marathon de Sabs or, you know, some kind of stage race or expedition even. Um, I wanted to close it with some words of wisdom. You've experienced the world, you've worked with amazing people, and I'd just like to hear your closing thoughts on today's conversation. Well, you know, I, I think one of the greatest lessons that I, I took and I read it somewhere, it was a quote I read somewhere that said, you know, a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step or something like that. And in anything we do, it's it's the commitment to taking those first few steps. If you're, you're getting off the couch and you're running your first 5K, it's not about going out and running the 5K right away. It's the process of commitment to being able to run the first 5K right, of actually committing to what it is that you're doing and following through on that commitment. And I think that in that is, is so much that applies to real life. And the other thing that, that I was quoted in running the Sahara of saying, and something that I truly believe is that all the stuff that we do and the challenges that we, that we face, many of the challenges, especially when it relates to our sport, is that it's 90% mental, the other 10% is all in our heads. And I and I mean it kind of in a funny way, but I mean it seriously. It's hard physically to do this stuff. And you know it's going to be hard physically, and that's part of it. But it's the mental aspect. It's really the mental acceptance of doing what you're doing. You choose to do it, now you got to do it. And it's that mental capacity. So for people to remember that that's where it comes from. It doesn't necessarily come from your legs. It comes from your head. Well, Ray, I really appreciate it. And where can we follow you on social media as you hopefully are, are lined up and, and ready to go on this next expedition? Yeah. So I, you know, my website, raysahab.com has all links to all my social, but I, you know, I'm obviously older. So I was on Facebook first. So I do have a Facebook page. Um, it's got a little blue check. That's the page, the public page that I use. Um, and I post there quite a bit. I started becoming a lot more active on Instagram during the pandemic. I've always posted there, but I would just sort of share posts from my Facebook page. Now I'm actually been posting there and I'm enjoying the convenience of that. So I would say, you know, check me out on Instagram. That's where I'm probably cool. am most of the time now. So there you go. Twitter too is where I follow you also. Yeah, I know. It's funny. That, You're good there. You, yeah. I You're just, everywhere. I'm there randomly, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much everywhere. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Ray. Thank you. Thanks again. And that was episode 188. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Big thank you to Ray for taking so much of his time and sharing all those really cool stories. Uh, pleasure speaking with him. Hopefully we can stay in touch and, and have him on again and collaborate on some projects in the future. 
big thank you to you Patreon supporters. You guys make this all work. I really enjoy the closed Facebook group conversations. You get sneak peeks before the episodes are released, and those are without commercials. And just generally, we're putting together a Patreon-first hat, so we're going to put together a trucker hat, some other things, so you guys already know. But I just really appreciate you guys. You make this all work. And big thank you again to Exoskin, Tannery Outdoors, and the John Wayne Cancer Foundation, their grit series. Most importantly, don't forget to enjoy your training. See you soon.